Welcome to our Agile Tales, where we share the various successes and trials we've encountered as we navigate corporate levels and political waters to transform the business to be adaptable to this forever changing world. Today, we continue where we left off last time with Beata Bosnus as we discuss Beyond Budgeting. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, please do so before listening to this one. A little bit about Beata before we start. Beata pioneered the Beyond Budgeting movement. He has a long international career in both finance and HR. He's also an author, a business speaker, and the winner of the Harvard Business Review Management Innovation Award. Let's welcome Beata back as we bring him on to explore Beyond Budgeting. Hello, Beata. Thank you for being in yet another episode of our Agile Tales, where we're going to explore beyond budgeting. Shall we dive right in? Why not? All right. Last time we talked about ambition to action. Now, there are companies that think that ambition to action is a bit much. So what do those companies do instead? Well, I understand that. And the simple reason that ambition to action, that Equinor has ambition to action, that's the worst so-called balanced scorecards in place before beyond budgeting. If you're familiar with balanced scorecards, it is an kind of OKR-like, OKR-ish thing, a little bit more advanced and older because that was invented many, many years ago or became popular many, many years ago. I think it was actually developed at the same time as OKRs. But the problem with balanced scorecards is that very often they are the mindset behind how they are applied is centralized command and control and micromanagement and cascading with all those KPIs and so on. And then it can be even worse than budgets. So what Equinor did was to keep on with that concept, but kind of try to kick out all those bad sides of it and reinforce the good sides and then heavily inspired by Beyond Budgeting. But I fully understand that maybe the company wouldn't kind of done it exactly like this if they started from scratch today. But it works well. It's been there for 15 years, so that's a sign that it works. But what other companies do, as I said, some do almost nothing. I mean, they have transparency, strong values, and that's basically it. Some use some KPIs, relying heavily on benchmarking and league tables, as we say in Europe. Some use unit production costs. Some use these overall frames. Some just monitor costs. Again, there is a variety of so much better alternatives. And you don't need just to pick one of these alternatives. You can see it as a toolbox where you can combine different of these tools as the ways to manage cost in your organization. Got it. There's an interesting question coming to me right now, and it's about sales, because as an engineer, sales I know is compensated very differently. You know, they need to meet sales target and they get bonuses out of that. So Are there any differences between sales and non-sales teams because of those performance targets? Do those have to change? What are they measured against overall? Well, first of all, Equinor does not have a big sales force as such due to the nature of its business. It's energy and a commodity business. So you're basically selling energy into a black market hole, to put it a bit, a bit simple. Of course, there are traders, but I mean, it's not, there's not a big force of, of salespeople like a number of other companies would have done. So if I can ask that question a bit more general then, because it's still a relevant question. And it goes back to the whole notion of individual bonus. 
And um, I'm sure our last time shared with you that I have no belief whatsoever in that way of motivating people. I'm even skeptical when it comes to salespeople because my skepticism go back to the assumption behind that performance can be individual. And I think that in today's knowledge organizations, it can't be individual. Now, some people say that, okay, but for salespeople, it's different. They are kind of the lone ranger out there, um, kind of fighting their own fight and riding out in the sunset every evening or every night with uh, blowing the smoke of their uh, Smith & Wesson and having kicked some ass and sorted out today's trouble all alone. That's not the case anymore. I mean, first of all, sales is very different today compared to what it used to be. And also, even if we look upon it as a kind of solo job, maybe that great sale today was the result of great back office service on that previous sale, right? So even here, I think we should question this notion of individual bonus. And there are many alternatives. I mean, you can have team bonuses, you can have profit sharing schemes, you can have kind of spot bonuses, which is not dangling carrots in front of people. It's more kind of surprise, nice, not that monetary compensation, but that's different from a do this and get that award mechanism. So I know a number of people disagree with me here on sales, but um, for me, it is not as individual as it probably used to be. You're absolutely spot on, actually, about sales. Let me actually change that question a little bit, because it's not too much about personal. But if you look at sales, even as a sales as a team bonus, which, yes, uh, sales are changing, performance is still based on targets. Mm-hmm. Targets were actually set for them, and then yep. they have to meet it. Yep. Personal team doesn't matter. Yep. Now, the the reason I ask is product development groups they don't use targets for performance evaluation. They are actually well traditionally, at least the companies I worked in, they're measured against roadmap delivery. Do you deliver what you said you will in on the roadmap? And the roadmap was set during yes those annual corporate planning, which normally happens now, now would be like, you know, mm-hmm. since this is November, yeah. it is a crazy time of the corporate planning, which is essentially, if you look at it that way, is essentially forecast. So product development organizations uses basically the roadmap, delivery against roadmap to measure the performance. When you talk about performance earlier, you weren't talking about like, you know, targets. And that's the reason why I'm thinking, are there any differences between sales and non-sales teams? Because for product development, we never look at targets, to be honest. Well, of course, it depends on how we define targets and how you define those uh, expected deliveries, right? Because targets can be formulated through both words and numbers and This is an important discussion because there are actually serious problems with target setting as well. When I say targets now, I'm mainly talking about numerical targets, often financial and very specific, 29.2 and so on. If you think about the targets, that is a target is about sitting in default the year before and trying to decide what does good performance look like 12 months down the road. And if there's a lot of uncertainty, how on earth do you know, right? Should it be 30 or 28 or 25? You don't have a clue, but you have to decide. And then the answer becomes 29.2. And that becomes the truth that everything is evaluated against, right? And back to what we just discussed, instead of predefining upfront that 29.2 is the right number, why not simply say that high is better than low and let's do as good as we can. And afterwards, we look at what we delivered, 
We look at the headwind, the tailwind, the changes in assumptions, and then we have an evaluation of performance. Again, that takes a bit more of leadership, a bit more of assessment. Traditional evaluation against targets takes no leadership at all. Any junior accountant can do it or any secretary because it's just a question of comparing two numbers and then conclude, right? Some people say that, well, we must have targets for two reasons. First, if there's no targets, there is no direction. Well, that's not true because there are many ways of creating direction. You can talk about towards and ranges, or you can use words or whatever. And as we just talked about, it's perfectly possible to evaluate performance afterwards, even if you haven't predefined the answer upfront. Not just possible, but so much better. There are companies out there in the beyond budgeting world that after having spent a number of years setting better and more meaningful targets, they have actually realized that maybe you don't need these targets. In Equinor, actually, after 15 years, that discussion was just cracked open as I left, uh, a discussion that couldn't have been there five years ago, 10 years ago, but now the company was uh, ready for at least discussing it. Mm. And, um, and I think we are kind of, we're on autopilot with, with targets. We think we need targets for everything. And by the way, I'm, I have no problem with targets that you set for yourself. I mean, that's uh, losing weight or whatever, but, but that's different, right? I'm talking about targets set from above with the purpose of punishing or rewarding. That's very different. Yeah, so I probably want to make it clear to perhaps the listeners that for product development organization, while we don't have a financial target per se to measure performance, we do have targets because the targets are what we thought we were going to commit to to deliver on the roadmap. That's a target. It's just not a financial number target, but it is a target. So what Beata just mentioned, it's absolutely applicable for people who product development organization who are actually being measured again against how well you deliver against the roadmap, because that's the target. Um, yeah, back, back to the definition of performance. I mean, performance is not about hitting targets. Performance is about performing as good as possible given the circumstances. That is what we're after. If everybody is doing that, the company will, organizations will perform fantastic. But uh, it's kind of, it's not management enough. So we need this kind of uh, mechanism then of target setting, because if there are no targets, then nothing will happen, right? Everybody will just, uh, yeah. it's back, to, back to this view on people, this mistrust in people. And that unless you manage people, there will be no performance. I just hate that label performance management. It is so negative, so negative. Indeed. Now, I understand that these management processes that you mentioned are supposed to be organized dynamically around business rhythms and events. So would a company have a performance evaluation cycle? And if so, how often is it? How is that done? Is there feedback outside of that corporate cycle? And if there isn't a corporate cycle, then what would trigger a company-wide performance evaluation? Well, that is a choice companies make. You can still have a dynamic management process in all the other aspects of it. And then you can still decide that, all right, once a year, we will sit down and have a more formal performance discussion that might have some implications when it comes to further development and maybe some reward consequences. So we shouldn't be fundamentalists here. If it makes sense to do sit down and do this once a year, by all means do it. But we tend to think that because we have performance evaluation once a year, 
then we need annual targets on everything. We need uh, everything else has to be annual. And that's not true. I mean, if you have targets, let them have natural deadlines, right? I mean, you can have a target with, uh, with there's urgency and the deadline is three months up. There might be another area where uh, things are more complex and uh, the deadline is 18 months out. And then there might be some targets that happen to have a deadline end of the year. And if you don't sit down and evaluate performance uh, end of the year, then you look at at this and um, the one and having deadline end of December, you have fresh information on. The one having that long deadline, you can have a look at the status and the one having that shorter deadline, you would know what the outcome was. So I think we're too much on autopilot because certain things maybe make sense to do more annual than everything must be done annual. That doesn't make sense. Of course, this should, in any case, never be just annual events. I mean, it's, of course, as we all know, the feedback must take place continuously all the time. But I'm talking more kind of these instances where this has more formal consequences. Indeed, very, very good point. Now, a lot of companies also use those company-wide performance evaluation to determine promotions. And... I'm curious, does Beyond Budgeting has any guidance on what the criteria for promotion is or career advancement? Or perhaps another question would be, how are the levels defined? Because when you're promoted, people have, have this thinking of, well, I am being promoted to a higher level, more senior level. Yeah, yeah. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to organization and levels and, and, and whatever, I mean, we are a bit agnostic and we think this can work in many, many structures. But again, having doing promotions annual is just as stupid as doing a lot of other stuff annual. I mean, that should happen at when, when, yeah, when there is a need for doing it. The annual should be the exception and not the rule. Very well which, said. Uh, which again means that you need to have these discussions on a much more continuous basis then. So, uh, very well said. Well, how about rewards? Because you mentioned that it's shared success against competition, not against the fixed performance contracts. So, what are the criteria for rewards? And I'm assuming that that includes bonuses. And also, what are the criteria for salary rises? Our recommendation on rewards is first is to make it a common scheme, so group wide as a kind of shared thank you for everybody doing well. And if possible, we recommend it to be driven in relative terms, if that's possible. So how is the company doing versus competition? And, you know, I know some people say that, well, what about the free riders, right? That kind of get a bonus, even if they didn't contribute that much. First of all, I mean, free riders will always be an exception. If your company is full of free riders, you have a very different problem. <laughs> so the free riders are an exception and you can't base your management model on exceptions, right? You have to kind of base it on what you generally think about people and then you have to manage these exceptions kind of in a separate way. And what we very often find is that there are social justice taking place in teams as well when it comes to free riders. That can also be a way of addressing this. When it comes to the rhythm here, I mean, there's nothing wrong in saying that, well, once a year, we, we do this once a year and have, have the, the salary review and pay out the bonuses. Again, we shouldn't be fundamentalists. But there is, uh, again, I'd like to say a bit more about bonuses and this uh, Swedish bank, Handelsbanken, that has 
700 branches in Northern Europe, quite big in the UK. They have such a scheme, a common bonus scheme driven by how they perform against competition. But it has a few interesting aspects. First of all, it is the same amount to everybody. Not the same percentage or not different percentages, the same amount for everybody. So the one with the lowest percentage bonus in the company is the CEO because they have differences in, in base salary levels. And some people said, well, that's crazy. But if you think about it, well, is it really? Because if the purpose of bonus is motivation, which I highly challenge, but if it should be true, which I don't think it is, then how come the guy at the top need the biggest doses of that motivation medicine? I actually thought that's where you find some of the most interesting and motivating jobs in, in, in companies. So, so that's, that's one interesting feature they have. The other thing is that it's not paid out annually. You get your bonus at when you're 60 or when you leave the company. And the reason is that they don't want anything that smells of kind of short-termism, uh, carrots and so on. There's still quite a lot of money into this. This scheme was introduced in the mid 70s. If you've been with the company since then and you're about to retire, which you probably would be, would do by now, there will probably be, have been around uh, one and a half million euros waiting for you, which is even more in dollars. So there is money into this, but it's built on a very different set of assumptions, right? It is not short-term carrots do this and get that. It's everybody in the same boat rewarded for kind of, yeah. The fascinating thing is that this bank, at one point, it was the fastest growing bank in the UK. And almost all branch managers were recruited from uh, UK competition, meaning banks with pretty fat bonus schemes. And still people wanted to work for Handelsbanken which means that they are competitive, even if they can't offer these individual bonuses. Not just because there is some money into this common scheme, but just as much about the view on people, the fact that they let branch managers be branch managers. So they get a competitive advantage through the management model, not just in what turns out short term on the bottom line, but also in their competitive advantage when it comes to recruiting, attracting people and retaining people. I have to say that I'm going to stop kind of uh, <laughs> getting mad on individual bonuses here, but uh, I can see no area where there is a bigger gap between what most research is telling us and what most businesses is practicing. It's simply amazing, right? It is easy. And as I often say, it's a managerial laziness, dangling this bag of money in front of people. That takes less leadership effort than to motivate people through in other ways more related to leadership. I absolutely love how you think of bonuses. And I actually agree with you that bonuses dangling as a carrot. No. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying that money is not important. Of course, money is important. As Alfie Kuhn said in his great book, Punished by Rewards, pay people fairly and get money off the table. Yes, money is important, but that's not the only motivator. There are other better motivators. And if it is the only motivator for all employees, then you have another problem again. Exactly. Now, this circles back to the topic of budgets, because in traditional companies, all reward and recognition is budgeted in this annual corporate planning. And since planning activities are no longer calendar-driven, and in some companies that does beyond budgeting, there are even no budgets. Then how do we get the money needed to increase people's salaries or give out bonuses? 
Well, you get the money needed by performing well, which is good for the cash flow, and that creates the money needed. So I think that's not the issue. It's more what kind of mechanisms do you have for assessing uh, and evaluating performance, and that is what we just talked about as such. But, you know, the problem with putting bonus individual bonus on an annual budget, it makes the, it kind of turbocharges the budget problems. It makes the, those problems even worse because it, it makes the hunt for hitting those numbers much more intense with all the uh, side effects that, that we all uh, know of. So it makes the whole budget problem twice as scary, to put it that way. Indeed. Wow. I mean, this is definitely a very different way of thinking, and uh, I think I that need what, that, that's, that's, that's what you said is very important, because the challenging thing with Beyond Budgeting is not to change what we do, it is to change how we think, right? So that is what managers need. That's the painful part. And you can't, you don't change what you, how you think by copying what other companies have done, right? Because that lies in what you do. And so this is the hardest part, but once that is in place, I mean, the effect, then all the process changes become obvious and becomes a piece of cake. Without that changing in thinking, um, those management processes seem scary and unthinkable. Indeed, indeed. And, and I definitely need some time to actually wrap my head around it. Yes. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, and so we need to wrap this up. That's all the time we have today. Next time, we'll pick up where we left off as we continue to explore Beyond Budgeting with Beata Borsnes. You don't want to miss it. Thank you so much for listening to our Agile Tales. Feel free to ping us on our agiletales.com.